0: Welcome to the restaurant boiler room season 4 episode 9. I'm your host Rick Ormsby, managing director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the boiler room, I'll be doing a walk down memory lane with M&A patterns from the past 20 years as well as give some reactions from discussions with franchisees at several recent restaurant conventions. I'll talk about recent M&A transactions completed at Unbridled and I'll discuss the impact of the new FAST Act legislation in California. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk, delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, okay, glad you were able to join us today. It has been a traveling couple of weeks for me. I just got back from the Burger King convention and then the Sonic convention and then Parents' Weekend at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, which I might add is just an incredible place. I've never seen such respectful young men and women looking you in the eyes, saying yes or no, sir, and dressing appropriately and acting like, uh, Young men and women. It's an impressive place. I have a feeling that 10 years from now, half the people in America want to send their kids there. But uh, we had a great time. I tell you, uh, Burger King and Sonic conventions are both fantastic. I'll talk a little bit more about them later. Uh, You know, I wanted to first maybe start with this. I was, uh, you know, like many of us, you come out of COVID and you're thinking, like, you know, here I'm in the middle of my career and I need to kind of, uh, you know, I want to stay, I want to grow. I love to grow. I love to continue to you know, to push the limits, right? That's just kind of my personality. I would encourage you who are listening to this to do the same, you know, you in this, you know, I'm in my late forties now and I'm kind of thinking, okay, you know, I, you, you know, I've got another 20 years in this business of this MA business and I love it. Every day I wake up is a, is a day I love, but I want to grow and continue to challenge myself. So I've been kind of digging into some, some authors and reading books and things that kind of give me some motivation I happened upon a guy named Ray Dalio, who's one of the world's largest hedge fund managers. Many of you maybe have heard of him. He's interviewed a lot. And so he's got a book called Principles, and he's got another book, too, that just came out. But I was listening to an interview with him and Tony Robbins. It's interesting that uh, you know he has taken patterns that he's seen over the last... 500 years in history and kind of applied those patterns to what happens to, you know, local and world economies. Really kind of an interesting study. And it reminded me a minute of, uh, of like, you know, the patterns that we see in this world. If, the, you know, Tony Robbins had made the comment that if you see, you know, people who, who see patterns And can adapt to patterns, but also who can create patterns are those people who are typically successful. And, you know, I was thinking back to the tennis world. Most people watch a tennis match, especially a USTA tennis match, or even really like a big tennis match, like, you know, one of the, you know, the, the professionals playing. And they'll say... You know, they're just hitting the ball back and forth. You know, I can see they're trying to hit it to the guy's backhand or the girl's backhand or, you know, they're trying to hit a big first serve down the middle. But what people typically don't realize is that most, if not all of these professional tennis athletes and even non-professional tennis players who are very good play a very distinct and very discernible pattern. And I kind of have followed this over the years. So I can watch a tennis match and I can tell you about 90% of the time where the ball is going to go before the player hits it. I mean, obviously, the, each of the opponents knows that as well. But when they're playing each other, but the pattern of doing things in patterns over and over again, a predictable pattern helps the tennis player discern which shots to make and also gives them a better, you know, feeling of what their chance of success is. So I'm going to talk for a minute about going back 20 years in this business, and I'm just going to ramble, you know, for those of you who listen for a while, I sometimes do that, but the rambling will hopefully give you some tidbits. You're going to have to discern a lot of it yourself. But uh, what I'm trying to do is kind of create a pattern of 20 years in this business, this M&A business try to talk about some highs and lows and some of the things I've seen and then let's try to then think about or you can try to think about how that experience that I have and I'll think about it too can maybe translate into the future because obviously the best way of understanding the the present and the future is to first you know understand the past right so I got into this business like in 2000 one time frame and uh, started working for Yum in 2002, three, four, and five, and then left and started doing M&A work on my own in 2005. When I got into the business, I've you know, i told this story before, I believe, but uh, I left Yum Brands in 05. We had just been through kind of a recession, as you guys might remember, 9-11 happened. And then we had like a really, really bad economic downturn in 02 and 03. When I left Vanderbilt at Vanderbilt MBA school, you know, we, I was looking at like WorldCom and Enron were coming to campus, and then both of them like flop and go bankrupt, really high profile bankruptcies, right? You had the stock market in a, in a massive turmoil, and then, you know, gas prices were really high. And of course, gas prices affect restaurant sales in a really negative way. So when I got into the, into the business, gas prices were really kind of hurting the industry, there had been a bunch of deals in 98, 97, 98, 99, and maybe 2000. There were securitized lending deals mostly where people would be pooling, like lenders, like these lending entities, not lenders, would be pulling together like a consortium of investors and they would give an extraordinary amount of advance on a restaurant acquisition. You know, often. Greater than hundred percent of the proceeds. So these franchisees were having to like, were, were, we're not having to come forward with much in the way of equity to buy these businesses. They were lending, and the way the securitized loans worked was, you know, you promised a return to the investors, and you largely, if you were the borrowing franchisee, you couldn't get out of those loans without massive prepayment penalties. But the upshot of it was. In exchange for high interest rates and inflexibility, you got like a hundred or even a hundred and five, hundred and ten percent of the purchase price advanced to you. In many cases, at that time, there were a lot of, there were a lot of, uh, you know, in the in the late nineties, it was kind of a go go time, right? You remember, right before Y two K, and uh, internet stocks are going wild, and they were doing these big deals, and franchisors were selling, were selling large chunks of restaurants at high prices. Now we get into the two thousand and one, and we hit a recession. Gas prices jumped pretty significantly. And you see a lot of those franchisees who took on heavy acquisitions, mostly from corporate that was selling them. And a lot of them actually, from my experience, just my purvey, were from Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. You know, Taco Bell wasn't the darling back then that it is today. And and Pizza Hut and Taco Bell were largely selling at similar multiples of valuation then. But these big corporate deals were happening. There weren't as many mega franchisees. And then you worked at, you know, you entered into kind of a workout phase in 2001 and 2002, especially with Starlink on the Taco Bell side when you had the genetic uh, corn in the tacos, right? And so it affected restaurant sales. At that time, too, there were a couple of like really high-profile rat cases, you know, like rat, there, were, there was a big rat infestation at a Taco Bell and a KFC up in New York, and it dropped Taco Bell sales precipitously for a period of time. So it, it resulted in some workouts, the franchisees that had taken on, you know, these securitized loans were not defaulted on, of course. They were worked out because the investors behind them, they, they were a big enough organization, they didn't want them to fail. We fast forward into 03, 04, 05, 06, 07, and the market really starts to heat up. And valuations over that time frame start to get a little start to trend upwards. You know, I get into the business in 05. And at that point in time, GE Capital was really starting to lend and they were lending very freely and lending in many cases not on the basis of EBITDA. I can remember seeing deals where you would see people putting you know, together pro forma numbers and sending them to GE Capital and the loans would be getting approved and there was really no basis on the current, you know, P&L's. It was just like on what the guy thought he could run and this wasn't like a large organization looking to borrow more. This was someone coming into the business from the outside with no with no stores under their belt, right? So it was a became a bit of a frothy time. Valuation multiples started getting kind of, you know, high. It was kind of the advent of the sale leaseback world too. I can remember in 2000 like 6 and 7. I mean, we were, And even I was still like doing a valuation of a rest. can you believe this, of a restaurant business and looking at the real estate as just a component of the value, not separate from the business at a cap rate and an implied rent. So I look back and I kind of giggle at the valuations back in 06 and 07. I mean, even though the multiples were coming up and this idea of a sale lease back was starting to happen, but like not many people knew about it. You know, I, I look back at those valuations. It's crazy, man. I mean, we were valuing stores that today would be three times what they are now, right? You know, largely because of the real estate component was not was maybe being valued at like ten or fifteen percent of what it is today. It's really interesting. Two thousand eight, we hit the the skids with the financial crisis, right? In the Great Recession in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, and there was a pronounced, a very pronounced. Slowdown in M and A activity. You know, I can remember. I believe it was 2010. I was told. I'll never forget this by a lender when we did like a 26 million dollar KFC deal. There were like 30 KFCs in Alabama area that we sold. That the lender had told me that, to his knowledge, it was the largest restaurant deal that had gotten financed in the entire year in the industry. I mean, can you believe that? Like. You know, that probably, you know, just one lender. So it's probably not the end all be all right. But, it, you know, directionally, there was such little credit in 2009 and 2010 that you really had, there was really no way to finance a restaurant acquisition. So activity really, really dried. And that one deal at that $25, $26 million price had a huge real estate, you know, component, a, a sale, leaseback component on it, which again was kind of a new fangled thing during that time. You started kind of seeing the advent of the mega franchisee. It was happening slowly and it started largely by like first or early second generation franchisees that were just trying to like go from 10 to 35 stores. And so it wasn't like private equity backed or investor led. It was the franchisee, him or herself, trying to finance the deals and buy the stores within their own portfolio. We hit 2010, which is kind of the low point. I was in the bankruptcy court in, you know, in in, uh, Delaware on a Pizza Hut deal. And a lot of the, you know, the painful things were happening and unraveling in 2010. And that's maybe a learning is that, you know, there's a delayed reaction with the bad news. You know, people, you know, can't just dig out of a bad situation once it turns. And they don't, you know, and they usually don't have a terrible outcome initially either. Right. You know, it takes time. And unfortunately, time to create a, a difficult situation and then time to get out of it. So, and it was probably a full 18 months before we started seeing really the the really kind of difficult difficult times in the industry, the bankruptcies, the really distressed sales, smaller franchisees were needing to sell you saw the advent of the larger independently operated franchisee so the franchisee base probably you know dropped by 30% and the average franchisee grew by you know five or six units right so the credit was still terrible up into 2011 In 2011 2012 you started going to conventions and started to see lenders return you know i would go to the conventions in 2008 9 10 and 11 and you didn't you know you you hardly saw any advisors and you didn't see very many lenders and and coincidentally, at, at at the couple of the conventions I've been to this fall, I mean, one of them, we were the only MA advisor. And uh, the other one, there's only one other. And then you see lenders are not really around as much right now either. There's probably half as many lenders, maybe less, than there were in the last couple of years. So we're kind of maybe entering that same kind of kind of place. 2012, you started seeing some lenders early jump on the bandwagon to get back into the space. And actually, one of them, it, you know, to my recollection was Wells Fargo. They kind of made an early bet in KFC and they started kind of lending a little more quickly than others. And I think that was one of maybe their keys to success over those next five or six years. So you had the early adopters come back in to provide some liquidity into the space. And then essentially what happened was, as the economy improved, you started seeing corporate selling again. And that a lot of corporations, franchisors, still had 20 to 25, 30% franchise. Or ownership back in those days. And and they quickly started selling stores. And quickly in 2013, you know, you see a lot of the groups that have become really, really successful now are the ones that bought those corporate acquisitions at probably, you know, valuation that at the time was fair, but now looking at it, it, looked to be four times or five times less than what it's worth now, right? And they came in and they took an early risk, they consolidated and bought like 30 or 40 or 50 of something. You know, they were able to get it financed. They understood the real estate market. A lot of them came in with some investors this time because the deals were a little bigger. And they bought things that ultimately they were able to monetize an enormous gain over time with them. Right? And then we started seeing kind of this progressive you know, growth again in valuations, which happened probably in 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, a little longer than the last cycle from the early 2000s. And uh, this is when you started seeing these mid-sized franchisees that were individuals that, that owned now maybe 30 stores starting to sell to the private equity and family office community. And they started jumping in and supplying tons of liquidity. Lenders are everywhere. Interest rates are crazy low. Valuations start to come up. And I was talking to a franchisee today who asked me how valuations in one brand had gone over the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, I said, well, it was like four times, three and a half to four times EBITDA back in 2000 and, you know, 2008. And then, you know, and I even started back sooner than that, maybe 2002. And then it goes up to like four to five times EBITDA and maybe it hits five and a half. And then it dips back down to four times EBITDA through the latter part of 2009, 10, 11 and then it climbs back up to to four and a half times EBITDA, then five, then five and a half, where it's sitting at five and a half times EBITDA in two thousand sixteen, seventeen, then it hits six. The deals get larger, and maybe it hits six and a half times EBITDA in 2018, 19. And then we get the COVID craziness. Everything locks down. but when the, you know the market opens back up with the scare of, uh, of higher taxes, sellers hit the market. The market conditions are great. Lenders are really frothy and the numbers, again, are in the six and a half times. And, and this time they're six and a half times a big EBITDA because uh, fast food in many cases has done really well during the pandemic. So here we sit in 2022. Credit has tightened deal flow is most certainly dropped by 70% in the M&A world i would say at least maybe more conditions you know are bad i don't think people realize that they're worse than than maybe what you think they are right now in many cases but and they're probably getting worse not better even though you, we are seeing some sales increases in some brands i think the story of you know 3 to 450 basis points in in commodity pressure and then two to 400 basis points in labor pressure. I mean, all of this stuff is is real and not going away. And even though the headline says inflation is getting less in the stores, it's just on a month over month basis. It's not on a year over year basis. So it continues to be an issue. So the learning would be that we're probably, you know, only in the third or fourth inning, if, if even that in this cycle, you know, with rising interest rates, rising commodity costs and labor costs, tightening credit a lot of MA activity has happened. A lot of franchisees are stuffed to the brim with deals that they took down over the last 18, 24, 36, 48 months. And we are sitting here with very low EBITDA or pardon me, very low volume of MA activity. And it may stay this way for a while. I mean, who you know, no one's gonna want to sell something that they have built unless they have to, unless there's a death or a divorce or, you know, or a circumstance forces them to, poor performance. You know, they, they would rather wait and, and hold on and hope for better times to sell again. You know, we've been maybe nine months into this, you know, recessionary time that most people don't want to get call a recession. I mean, what's going to happen? I don't know. But it, But looking back at the last two that I've seen, I would say it's a three-year type of problem based on the two, you know, in the last 20 years I've seen. It's a three-year problem, not a nine-month or, or 12-month problem. So the only difference we have here is, you know, you got a couple of things balancing the seesaw. The first would be you've got a lot more liquidity in the market than we did back then. There's so many investors in, you know, in the franchise business. It almost feels like it's a a stock market and not a restaurant environment anymore. If you know you know what I mean? Like you used to walk around and it was all about, you know, talking about the quality of the food and You know, and how to prepare it. And now, you know, you go to conventions and there's a bunch of young people talking about EBITDA, right? So I don't know how that impacts it, but there is a lot more liquidity in the marketplace. That's probably a good thing for any sort of downturn, you know, in terms of valuations. If you're listening to this and you might be a seller or a buyer of businesses, on the other side, you've got some uncertain times, don't you, with the labor environment. And it's not likely to get better soon. I make mention of the, you know, at this point of the FAST Act in, in California, which I, I guess Governor Newsom signed into law, what, like at the end of August? Is that right? Right. The last couple of days of August. I mean, there's a lot you read up on it yourself, right? But essentially what it says is if you're a chain of 100 units or more, you know, they're going to put together like this committee comprised of franchise or team members, franchisors, franchisees, and they're going to be, you know, looking at changing the conditions for the workers in fast food. And I think uh, a lot of people are projecting that, you know, food, you know, that uh, minimum wage will go to the 19 and then probably to the $22 minimum wage point. Fairly soon, I know there's a referendum. Let's not think that California is going to count all those votes in a referendum, right? That may be a political comment, but let's just say for a second that, that wages go up to twenty-two dollars from fifteen. I mean, that's you know, on a let's say a store does one point five million dollars. Let's say they have twelve percent operating margins, and let's say they have twenty-two percent, you know, team wages, and their average team wage is fifteen dollars an hour, and it goes to twenty-two dollars an hour, right? That'll essentially take. That store was doing like, it was doing like a hundred, call it $180,000 in, in profit or, or operating margin. And it's going to be, it, it'll drop down to like $26,000, you know, if they're not unable to raise prices, assuming prices stay flat in the stores. And that means that the that the operating margin in that example would uh, go in from $15 to $22 a, you know, a square foot or pardon me, not a square foot, a, a $15 to $22 per hour per employee, that takes 12% margins and drops them down to 1.7% margins. It's almost no profitability, right? So that's something that we have to contend with that I think changes maybe the dynamic of MA going forward. I'm not sure how much it changes it, but if I'm in a blue state and I'm an operator, I got to at least start asking myself the question, is it possible that my state may And I know it's out there. I've heard rumors that other states are considering similar California-like legislation to protect fast food workers' hourly wages. So if I'm in a blue state, i got to be asking myself, is this possible that my state could be doing this at some point in time? And if you come to, I think, the right conclusion, which it is possible depending on the state, then you want to be telling yourself, What? What are you going to tell yourself? I mean, you should be like answering my words for me here. You know, I know I can't hear you, <laughs> as listeners, but you should be saying, well, I would want to sell my business now? Wouldn't I? Because if I hold on to it, and you know, and then this any legislation is enacted in my state, it's going to have a hugely negative valuation dropped and hit to my business, right? And you would be right. I've heard anecdotal, you know, comments here in the last couple of weeks from both lenders and buyers of businesses in California who are telling me that they're that uh, valuations you know are dropping and that there are you know it's harder to get money and there are less people wanting to buy assets in those places it's just an initial look it's not based on a ton of evidence but just some conversations over the last 2 weeks that I've been having in the community which is not a surprise to any of us would it be if you're facing those types of wage increases you wouldn't be all that Excited about buying a business in that area. So I think um, that's one thing that may impact this if you're listening, right? Like revisit your M&A strategy. If you're going to retire in five years, you may want to retire in one, you know, even though the conditions aren't great. If your state's going to be one of the states that possibly could be looking to raise, raise its minimum wage that much you know, you're looking at a you know major valuation hit. You don't want to be in the middle of that. It won't end well. I can remember we were working on a deal in Seattle back in 2017 when they were like the first place to raise the minimum wage to $15. And I literally watched a 2 or $3 million EBITDA go to zero. It went to zero in like three months. I mean, you know, it was like shocking. The whole, it all disappeared. Now you know you like after a couple of years you know if you can raise your prices like a couple percent each month over the course of a couple of years, which is kind of how you have to do it. You could do it in chunks maybe, but you can't go try to take pricing to offset that all immediately, or you're going to lose. You're going to lose all your customers, right? So you do it over time, and eventually, hopefully, you know, God willing, you get there and you get to the place where your profitability is what it or close to what it used to be, and then the customer has to pay for a ten dollar Big Mac, right? That, I mean, that's the way it works. But in the short term, EBITDA is badly constrained, profits are badly constrained, and buyer sentiment from an MA standpoint is, is patchy. So another thing I think this fast legislation does is, I mean, it doesn't hurt the small guy. It doesn't help the small guy either, right? So there is an intentional carve out for like the small mom and pop franchisee that doesn't have to adhere by these large minimum wage increases if they happen. But I mean, what's going to happen if you're Joe's, you know, Joe's hamburger shack right next to a, whatever, a Burger King and the Burger King's paying their employees $22 an hour. I mean, are you going to get away paying your employees $15 an hour? Well, heck no, you're not, you know? So indirectly, all of these mom and pop operators are going to feel the, the pain of the added wage increase too. And a lot of them are going to go out of business. I mean, mark my words, a lot of them are going go out of business, unfortunately, So I think that's out there as well. And so that all of those kind of shifting dynamics are going to result in automation. I mean, I bet as we speak, people are in warehouses all over this country trying to develop robots to take out most of the, you know, to replace most of the labor force because... When you get that big of a 40% wage, you know, increase, all of a sudden, that's about the amount of, you know, technology and automation is, is like 40 to 50 to 100% more expensive than labor in the stores. But, but with a 40% wage increase, now we're getting closer to parity with better reliability. And so you'll see that going forward. I think because of that, we're going to see, even if this is a two to three year recessionary time frame where we have higher interest rates and just naturally lower deal flow, I think because of the pressures in the business itself that didn't exist back in 2009, 10, 11, and they didn't exist so much in 2000, you know, 2002, 2001, 2002, I think those pressures will, will cause selling to continue at a higher clip, even if the recession is bad, than what happened in, in the last two recessions. So that's my guess. I mean, heck, I don't know. But I do think we'll be in a period for a while where you see less deal flow. And I'm still wondering when we're going to see casual diners come to the marketplace. Their P&Ls have still taken a hit. We've been hoping and praying for the turnaround to happen in those stores. Certainly, they've been getting sales back and they're open for business and things are doing better. But but with the added cost, they've still taken a big hit to the P&L and they're still nowhere near where they were in 2019 in many cases. So we're just hoping that that that, that casual dining segment of the business, you know, gets healthy again soon. Uh, they haven't had haven't been able to enjoy much M and A, you know, over the last couple of years just because there wasn't much you know EBITDA there and not much of a demand from the lenders to finance the deals. And so there is a huge pinup demand there and aging franchisees who have been unable to sell. And so we're just, uh, you know, we're just watching that segment as well. You know, when we went through the, the prior recessions, you did see some brands that faltered more than others. But largely, I think it was just spotty across the country based on individual situation. And this time around, there are some winners and losers in the marketplace right now. I mean, we do see there are a handful of brands that really haven't performed well over the last couple of years, even despite the COVID lift in the business conditions and fast food. And so and then they're, you know, getting hit now as well with with the commodity and the labor issues. So I think there'll be an uneven amount of of uh, you know of difficulties across brands. Some brands are going to get taller and stronger on the backs of others that, that are going to shrink. And I think the geography because of the labor situation, the geography is going to matter maybe more than the brand. But you'll still have people that made poor decisions or, you know, or just can't hold it together. I do think um, a lot of the franchisees who got into the business during or right before the 2009 recession, a lot of them are still in the industry and still doing really, really well. Maybe one of their keys was, you know, their first or second or third acquisition was maybe towards the top of the market in 2007 and eight, but they continued to buy. It was one of these kind of like the dollar cost averaging idea when you're like in stocks, right? It's like, if you're going to buy 10 shares of a stock, buy one share every month for 10 months, and you'll be sure to be dollar cost averaged in and avoid a lot of the ups and downs of the market and the fear of buying one deal too high or one, you know what I mean, if that makes sense. So I think that was maybe a, a component that helped with the larger franchisees that bought in right before the last recession. I think they continued to buy and continued to seek opportunities. And so if you're a you know private equity or family office during this time, I know that your deal flow is down. You're not seeing as many you know, acquisition opportunities, but I'd encourage you if you have a thesis and you liked the thesis and you like the business, you, know, you like the, the brand and the characteristics of the brand and your prospects within that brand, Two years ago and you liked it last year, well, then, you know, and you have more of a, a medium term to longer term viewpoint. Well, you ought to really like it now, right? Because the value, you know, prices have come down because EBITDA has come down. So that ought to make you want to get back into the business further if you see the right opportunity. Okay, so that's a walk down memory lane. Think about that. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you're out there and you and you listen to this, zip me zip me some thoughts. Send me an email or something. Tell me what you think about what you've heard from me and how to apply it to the next three or four or five years in the business. How about that? Let's see. From the Burger King convention, it's funny, you know, the, the conventions, you know, the franchisees, and this is a real comment, right? Like the franchisees, these franchise brands like form their own personalities. And it's really cool because I go to a lot of these conventions. I know a lot of franchisees, right? Right. But uh, the Burger King franchisees, for example, Burger King was started in Miami, right? So you're at the Burger King convention and you're around a swimming pool at night with a bunch of people at an opening party and pit bulls pumping in the background, right? And then you go to the Sonic convention, which was started in Oklahoma City with like they have 3,400 locations and a thousand of them are in Texas, and this convention's in Dallas and you look around and they're playing country music and no kidding, like a fourth or a third of the of the people there have cowboy hats and cowboy boots on, and big, you know, belt buckles, right? So it's just and so these brands develop these really distinct personalities from one another. Those two brands that I just mentioned have very different personalities, right? They're both really cool personalities, but they just have a footprint that's a little different from one another. The Burger King Convention, I think. You know, there's, I don't want to say it's capitulation. Franchisees have had a rough go there. You know, they didn't, they're one of the brands that, you know, did not see a whole lot of benefit during COVID and, you know, their financial condition, the franchisees, the franchisors, it's it's not good. So they've, uh, you know, they had changes in the management structure. Franchisees who are out there seem to be more optimistic and more positive. I think they're just like, you know, what we we're gonna we got to give this a shot because the conditions have been so bad. I think there's a lot of positivity with Tom Curtis. A lot of people are really happy that he's uh, you know at the helm there, at least from what I could tell. You know, their FDD, you know, this is public information, you know, Burger King came out and they're reclaiming the flame is the name of their new initiative that they unveiled where they're going to put, I think it, you know, look, this may not be exactly right, but broadly, they're going to put $120 million of new advertising into the system. And then if if it produces sales, then they're going to ask the franchisees to contribute through higher royalties when they remodel and through other initiatives to the tune of what could be another $250 million who knows how big that number will be. And it is conditioned a little bit, I think, upon the success of the ad- added advertising spend. But overall, I mean, I think this is a, you know, it's it's being heralded as like a $400 million investment in the system. You know, it probably won't be, you know, anywhere near that big. But, you know, I think um, there's a lot of positivity coming from it, from a low place. So, you know, usually many of these brands, you know, work in pretty forceful cycles. And if you were to, to look at, you know, a low point, you know, Burger King would be near a low point, right? So if you were acquiring businesses, that might be something for certain types of investors that you might look at trying to buy something while it's at its low point. Franchisor also seems to be much more reasonable now and much more conciliatory towards the franchisees. And that's typically what happens when any of these past recessions, right? There's usually... You know, an element of the franchisor and franchisee, you know, either coming closer together or getting farther apart. The ones that do well, the franchisee gets, you know, and and recover. The franchisee and franchisor, they get closer together. You usually do see some infighting between the franchisor and the lenders, if you have any lender who has a huge portion of the debt in a brand. And so let's hope we don't see that like we did in 2010, you know, a lot of times at the bankruptcy court. At the Sonic Convention, boy, that was a lot of fun. Got to listen to you know big and rich country music uh, uh, singers there at the final night. They, you know, Claudia San Pedro is, is boy, she's got a great infectious personality, doesn't she? If you if you've ever heard her speak or met her, they in that convention because there's so many. You know, you know that brand has a lot of small percentage owners. So you might have a franchisee who owns 50 locations, or 10 locations, or 20 locations. But unlike a lot of other brands each manager not in every case but each manager might own 3 to 5 to 10% of the store where they operate and so it's a so so you have kind of like a a bigger team environment at these conventions for Sonic because you know a lot of the general managers are actually owners and so it's just a bigger convention a lot of energy there they're coming off of a really bang up job in 2021 i mean i think 2020 their same store sales were probably up around the 20% Range unbelievable, right? They're one of the biggest explosions of same store sales in 2020. They lapped it in 2021 with increases in same store sales, I believe. And then here we are in 2022, and they're down, and uh, you know, they're down year to date pretty substantially, not double digits in sales, but they're down single digits in sales. And I think it's a no surprise, you know, they had so much of an upswing, so they have some sales deceleration and some, you know, like every restaurant concept, some margin pressures. So they're going through, I think, you know, what'll probably be a you know, a time of of just kind of dialing back on the restaurant P and L's, focusing on value, focusing on messaging, focusing on marketing promotions and things. So I expect, you know, Sonic M and A to be kind of low for, for the next six to nine months. On the Burger King side though, I think it's probably gonna pick up a little bit. So that's just two observations. I got Three more conventions to go to later this fall. So stay tuned in other brands. I'll tell you kind of what what I see there too. A couple of other things I'd like to talk about. So I chatted about, I have a little note here, restaurant profitability. So I chatted a little bit about restaurant profitability, right? So generally, the general gist there's across the industry is sales are, depending on the concept, are flattish right now, but some they're up a little bit to moderately right now, now that we've gotten past the June-July time period of 2021 rollovers. So on a month-over-month basis, some franchisees and some brands are starting to see some increases. There's, so you know, if you're seeing sales up, it's usually with a higher check average and traffic is down a little bit, right? And in that case, profitability is down a little bit. That's kind of the way I'd characterize it in general, right? Every, every situation situation's unique. If your sales are down, then your EBITDA is way down. But we're seeing sales getting better and it's largely because people have finally, they've been slowly, franchisees don't like to change price. And a lot of the older franchisees from experience are very hesitant to change price. And they've started to do so and get more comfortable doing so. And I think that's had a good impact on same store sales. But traffic is a problem. Traffic is a problem, even though, you know, we'll watch, you know, gas prices have come down, at least in our area, it's now just slightly below $3 a gallon. And it was like four twenty-five in Florida here. So, you know, we'll see if that impacts things a little bit, but I get a sense that we're going to have a squeeze on consumer spending. And I might just be totally wrong about that. I hear just anecdotally that pizza sales are soft right now. I've heard a couple of analysts talk about they expect that the big pizza concepts are not doing well from a top line perspective right now. And I, you know, I don't know why that is exactly. Maybe it's promotion related. Maybe it's value related. Maybe it's competition from third-party delivery for other fast food chains. I don't know. Maybe it's just that they're rolling over stronger numbers coming out of COVID. But that's something I've been hearing. If you're a franchisee and you haven't taken advantage of the ERC credits, I'm starting to get a lot of people call me and talk with me about ERC credits. So employee retention credits. I don't know much about it other than it was kind of put in place like PPP with for the government, uh, by the government, so that people who are uh, employing workers during shutdowns or partial shutdowns, and of course that depended by state, uh, you're able to take advantage if you're of a certain size of employee retention credits. And they're pretty big numbers. I mean, they can be, you know, really large. I mean, we're talking $10,000 or more per employee and then in some cases, right? So... There are third party firms that are out there doing it. You know, your CPA is probably talking about it. Your CPA, probably, you know, unless they're really a large CPA and really experienced, it's such a niche area that, you know, your CPA may not know all of the rules, regulations, and, you know, ability to fight for the credits in a way that maybe someone who's a specialist could. A couple of specialists have called me. So I've got some names. And if, you know, if you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to give those to you. But that's something that I would not ignore. It could be substantial money. I think it it taps out a little bit based on size of the franchisee. I don't know how it works relative to whether you're incorporating in multiple concepts or multiple brands. But it really, I think it really works the best, from what I understand, with the franchisees who have between five and fifty units. It's kind of for the small to mid sized franchisee. They get they see the biggest benefit, all things considered, from what I understand. But I would, if you haven't. If you're a franchisee of that size or even larger and you haven't fully investigated the ERC credits, it should be part of you know an investigation. I'm happy to link you up with somebody if you're interested to at least explore what it could mean for your business and what the process would be, which is substantial, right? It involves you know revised filings and but it is a credit, which is a pretty it's not a deduction, it's a credit, which is a one for one reduction in your tax bill, which is a big deal. Okay, so that's ERC credits. What else? To, oh, we have we've had a couple of deal closings that I'll just kind of announce to you, kind of uh, because they're, they're kind of interesting. They kind of go with the theme here. The first of which was uh, we closed Steve Helm's stores. He had sixteen Taco Bell's in Shreveport and Bossier City areas of Louisiana and ADT Pizza. Led by Adam Diamond, bought the business. He's back to buy a private equity group out of New York, and they're doing great things. They bought a couple hundred Pizza Huts through several acquisitions, and now they're a Taco Bell franchisee as a second brand for them. You know, we worked to get them approved. We represented the seller, but we worked to get them approved with Taco Bell Corporate. And, you know, Taco Bell Corporate's very, very difficult, very, very difficult to become approved as a new franchisee. And so Adam's franchise was, was able to get that approval. It wasn't easy, but we we're Thankful that it happened and and now he's in the system. And so that's kind of a landmark deal It was 16 units, but it was uh, a circumstance was one that you don't see very often in Taco Bell. So happy to see the Helms exit gracefully as well. They'd been in the system almost 50 years, 48 years. And what a blessing Steve and Justin and their family are. They are awesome, awesome folks. So, you know, we wish them super amounts of success, you know, and, and we'll miss them at the convention. There's a second deal we did recently, and it was um, we sold 24 Burger Kings and Popeyes, 16 Burger Kings, eight Popeyes in Kentucky mostly, and they were sold to Kevin Newell. The seller was Andrew Shorey. and I'd met Andrew maybe 10 years ago through a mutual friend at church up in Kentucky. And we became buddies. He's a second generation franchisee, and he is, uh, you know, he was ready to exit the system, and you know, had a great Burger King business. His Popeyes business was new. He had built it out over maybe a three or four year period. And it just decided to sell and move on. And so Kevin took the, to the business and, and closed it successfully across two brands. That was also a really unique deal. I think Burger King and Popeyes are probably trying to be separate more than they're trying to be together. And that's okay. That's the way the young brand system is too. You know, the brands are separate. They're, they're friendly, but they make separate decisions. So closing, you know, an acquisition at, at one time with two different brands like that is akin to closing two different deals at the same time, right? Uh, so it was a, a complicated deal, but it happened successfully. And I think it positions Kevin quite nicely as he has now a decent sized business in this middle Tennessee and, and Kentucky area. And you know, man, I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I went to Vanderbilt for MBA school. And and so for those of you who, you know, which is in Nashville, and for those of you who have, have been to Nashville anytime recently, I mean, that place, other than the crazy traffic is just an incredible growth story. Just, I mean, you, you know, you count the cranes going through Nashville. I mean, there's dozens of them. It's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Expect that city to to continue to thrive and grow. No state income tax and, you know, just great pro-business policies there. So, you know, expect that place to grow. A third deal that we we recently closed was 17 Taco Bells in San Diego. We uh, SD Bell sold to the Capriati organization, Cotti Foods. It's first deal done with the, with Cotti Foods and really impressed with them as an organization, very professional, sharp Adaptable, flexible, easy to work with. SD Bell is owned by Paul Hoover, who's a, a friend of mine, and we've done, gosh, a, you know, half dozen deals with him over the years. He's a great guy, and he was a part of the first deal that I did when I came out of corporate in 2005. He didn't actually get it; he was came in second place, but um, it was a small franchisee who had been a door to door vacuum cleaner salesman, but you know, but was looking through the newspaper and responded to a newspaper article to become a Taco Bell franchisee in Salina and Junction City, Kansas. Can you believe that? And he and his wife built and operated four stores. I called them up and they said they were ready to retire. That all happened in 2005. And oh, by the way, when that deal closed, I didn't have enough money to make the next month's uh, mortgage. (laughs) I guess that's what happens as an entrepreneur. You have to have a crazy story like that, don't you? But this deal was a good one, you know, in the San Diego area, good Taco Bells, right in the brand's uh, kind of wheelhouse, right where it started in Southern California. Glenn Bell started the concept right there in San Diego. And so a uh, cool deal. It's a third deal like in the last month that we've closed. So I think, you know, and I've gotten a couple of emails because I sent sent this out, you know, some of these closing announcements out on the wire couple emails coming back saying, yo, we're glad to see deals closing again. We're glad to see, you know, you're busy again. We're glad to see you're doing great. Thank you to everyone who who recognizes that. It's a real blessing to know all of you. Again, to start where I end, where I started, like I get up every day and I love this business. And I wish that for all of you, if you were listening to this podcast, like I don't know what else I do. And I think I'm blessed to know so many good, hardworking people in the franchise community who become like, in many cases, they're like five father figures to me. And now, heck, I'm like a younger brother to him, right? As I get older. But I just love what franchising represents in every small community and large town in America, like this, like solidarity towards, towards creating a, you know, kind of a craveable experience for the American populace. You know, and to do it across all types of people with all types of food, it's really an awesome business. I love it. Wouldn't ever find myself doing anything else. Encourage you to recharge, like that was a Sonic Convention theme. It was recharge. So I encourage you to recharge this fall. We've all been going hard and now we're back at it full time, even, you know, and and facing challenges. And it seems like the amount of variability and unpredictability in the world we live in is really high right now. But I encourage you to consider your life as an adventure. Go get it and find ways to continue to grow to keep that positive attitude. You know, don't wilt away or waste away. Let's go get this. Let's go grow. And I'm here cheering for you and here to help. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. Got a great podcast coming next time. So make sure I got two big franchisees. One owns about 450 locations and the other owns a couple hundred locations. And um, I'm hoping that both of them will be able to join us. And we're just going to wrap for about an hour to talk about it. It's going to be a webinar that'll be a podcast. We're just going to wrap for an hour about, about how they got into the business, their prospects for the future, how they set up their companies. I think it'll be a really insightful conversation. Uh, they're two of the top 20 names that you're hearing in the franchise space these days. So uh, it'll be fun. So have a great one. Stay in touch. Bye now. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.